Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 148 of Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Gregoire. And I'm Dan Beeston. And we have a special guest today from all the way from the ancient land of Canada. We have Dr. Wes Fraser. We're going to talk about all things trans-Neptunian. So let's get into it. Joining us on the podcast is Dr. Wes Fraser, the staff astronomer from the National Research Council. Hello, Wes. Howdy. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Now, we're here to talk about something super important on January 1st, New Horizons, the little spaceship that could, went past something called Ultima Thule. But let's step back a bit. Could you tell us a little bit about New Horizons, what it's been doing, where it's been, who it's been hanging out with, what's it want to learn about the universe? <laughs> uh, New Horizons is this fantastic little probe that NASA launched, oh, about, I guess it's been something like 15 years now, that is essentially the fastest man-moving probe humankind has ever made that was intended to be launched from the Earth anyway, and has been rocking through the solar system on its way to the Kuiper Belt. Of course, it flew by Pluto a few years back and then, then uh, passed MU69 on New Year's morning. It's the fastest moving thing so that it can get to and do all of this science in the Kuiper Belt in the lifetime of a typical scientist. <laughs> That's it. So it's been hauling, hauling, hauling the whole, like I said, over 10 years, 15 years now. But now you said you used a, a classification there for something it went past on January 1st. But really, the, the name I want to use is the, is the cool name. It sounds like something out of Ghostbusters, Ultima Thule. Yeah. So uh, 2014 MU69 is the designation that the Minor Planet Center gave it. So the Minor Planet Center is the company or, well, it's a really an institution inside of Harvard at the Center for Astrophysics that tracks all of the planetesimals and planets of the solar system. So all the asteroids are cataloged there, all the Kuiper Belt objects are cataloged there. And Ultima Tool is the name given to the, I don't think it's quite official yet, as these things typically take a long time for the international, uh, the astronomical union to approve these things. And this one might actually not be approved. Um, the reason why I use MU69 is is for a little bit of honesty about our past. The <laughs> so back in back in the Roman days, Ultima Thule was a, a, a cartographer's term representing the unknown, the ultimate, the place we're trying to go. And so Ultima Thule was often used as a reference to the famed North America before oh. Christopher Columbus went on his way, right? This, that's the sort of idea of what it was supposed to represent. And in that sense, it's a fantastic name. However, it was also a name commonly used to describe the Nazi party before it was the Nazi party. Oh. <laughs> um, and I see. Unfortunately, the New Horizons team knew this and chose it anyway. Um, so oh, I'm, I, no. podcast, I'm not going to comment, but I'm sure you can think what the world has thought of this <laughs> Twitter shitstorm when it all came out. And so I personally cannot get behind the name ME69. I think there's too much modern history behind it. Or, or, sorry, Ultima Thule. And so I'm going to call it ME69 and hope for something better. That's I had no idea about the Nazi connection. Yeah, there's a real I, Nazi connection there, and it's it's a, it's really unfortunate. It's really yeah, it is. We should call MU69 Here Be Dragons, like something like that. Just sort of if you're going to talk so, about parts of the map, 
that would be fantastic, right? Or the modern translation of the unknown, Christ, the French translation of the unknown. It could be anything mm. like that. And it was a very romantic idea, but unfortunately... Do we know what Ultima Thule looks like? Because if it looks like it's got like a little tiny Charlie Chaplin moustache, then maybe it's all back on the table. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, we all just need to get f***ed and stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. We got, uh, no, so, we got the perfect destination for the Nazis. No, <laughs> we will send them, send them all into space. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I never thought, I must admit, when I th- talked about astronomy, I didn't think we'd go down a Nazi rabbit hole. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Things you learn. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so we've got this thing out there. Why why did we send New Horizons out to MU69? Why do we care about it? Same reason we do most things in science, because we don't know. Um, we've never been there before. And so, you know, for, for years, for sort of the last 25 or so years, we've known about the Kuiper Belt and this giant swarm of bodies out there. At this point, we know about 3,000 or so of them. And, of course, there's millions more to be discovered that we've just not yet seen because telescopes are expensive to use. The idea behind these, the reason why they're scientifically interesting to most astronomers in the field is because their structure, where where we find these objects in the outer solar system, is reflective of planet formation and the motion of the gas giant planets thereafter. And so we, it's from the Kuiper Belt, for instance, the, the structure, the orbits that these things are on, that we know that we've got pretty damning evidence that Neptune has moved out a very large distance in the early solar system. Oh. So right now we find we find Neptune at say 30 astronomical units, which is you know one astronomical unit is the distance from us to the sun, and so Neptune is at 30 times that distance. It probably actually formed closer to 20 times that distance and moved out a great deal of that way. And in the process, it scattered a bunch of early planetesimals outwards into the orbits they're now found on. And so Pluto is one of those victims. Pluto is, was scattered outwards when Neptune was basically a bully. And so the reason, one of the reasons why we flew past Pluto, well, I mean, the, the PI of the mission, Alan Stern, thinks Pluto's a planet, and so we flew by the last undiscovered <laughs> planet. You could call Pluto Swiss cheese for all I f***ing care. <laughs> it's a big, fantastic body that we've never studied before that we do know got scattered outwards. And mm. so that is, the, to me, the unique thing about Pluto. Now, MU69, on the other hand, is in a population of Kuiper Belt objects at about 40 AU that we know because they're on sort of circular, quiescent orbits that are flat in the plane of the solar system, they never saw any strong influence by Neptune or any of the other gas giant planets, for that matter. And so MU69 represents a body that has basically remained where it formed since it formed. And so in that sense is a fantastically primordial object to go check. We've never really been to one before. Even comets that fall into the inner solar system, which are moderately fresh, have still experienced heating from the sun. Of course, they heat up as they come closer to us. So even 67P, when we flew by with Rosetta, that was a moderately processed body. MU69, on the other hand, has never been heated up beyond something like 40 Kelvin. It's been cold, it's been red. <laughs> It's been alone its entire existence, and so in that sense, it is probably the most primordial thing we've ever come close to, and so that's why we went there. It's fantastic in that sense. It, is it a dwarf planet or a cis cheese ball 
uh, like Pluto? No, actually. So planets are big enough things to have cleared their neighborhoods. ME69 and Pluto are objects that have not cleared their neighborhood. They're they're surrounded by other similar bodies. ME6 dwarf planets like Pluto most certainly is a dwarf planet are objects that have been shaped dom- their shape has been dominated by the effects of gravity. So they have been crushed a little bit and relaxed into roughly spheroidal things. They don't actually have to be completely spheres, mind you, but you know something like it. M69 it don't look like a sphere at all in case you haven't seen the pictures. It looks almost like two pancakes squished together. And so uh, of all the things out there, ME69 is very, very far from being a planet or a dwarf planet. It's mm. it's a fresh body, that's for sure. <laughs> is it um? How big is it? Like, is is it like thousands of kilometers across, hundreds of kilometers across? What's what sort of scale are we looking at? I think it ended up being about forty nine kilometers from from head to tail. Oh my um, goodness, it's tiny. And- Imagine a, a figure eight shape, a flat figure eight. And so from the head to tail of the figure eight is about 49 kilometers across. And then one of the loops of the figure eight is about 20 kilometers on a side, maybe a little bit more. And the smaller loop is about 15 kilometers on a side. And then if you were to turn that figure eight on its side, so you're looking at the edge of it, it actually is only about 10 kilometers thick oh. or about that distance. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but it's about that. Like two flat things squished together. Yeah, when you say flat, but when in my mind, when you said flat things switched together, it's not like two pancakes flat edge to flat edge. You mean like skinny edge to skinny edge, as in like a, I yeah, said, like so, a, yeah, an infinity right. symbol. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so one of the bodies is moderately, we would call it oblate. It's, it's slightly thick. It's like if you were to put too much or use bread flour in making a pancake. One of the pancakes would rise a little bit too thick, and the other one would remain pretty thin if you didn't use the bread flour instead. <laughs> um, and so that's to me is really what's happened here. You've got a thick pancake squished together with a thinner pancake, and they're they're touching edge to edge, as you correctly stated. In this universe full of round things or spherical oh. things, how the heck have we got two pancakes that are kissing? How did that happen? Um, good question. You know, it's funny because in in many ways. Yeah, well, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You, you you look at all the weird crap we see in the asteroid belt and the rubber duck that we see falling in from the Oort cloud and all this sort of thing. Maybe we shouldn't have gone in there thinking about spheres and stuff. Maybe we should have gone in expecting completely wacky things, and maybe a wacky thing that we saw is not really unusual. But there are lots and lots of different ways to come up with this shape, and it all really comes down to formation and evolution. One of the really neat features that doesn't get talked about enough, in my opinion, is how circular the two pancakes really are. And so, yes, they're thin on one edge, and that's pretty, that's pretty extreme. But if you look just on their faces, you've basically got two round circles squished together. They haven't really been squished in any other way, right? You can, you can draw a circle on top of or an ellipse on top of each of them and see very round surfaces. That's amazing. And we, we are pretty confident that shape has come from formation in some way. And so in the old-fashioned way, back in the 50s, when people were really starting to numerically simulate planet formation, the way we thought about it is the same way Canadians and Aussies collect bugs on windscreens as we drive down the highway. <laughs> uh, right? You've got a big thing sweeping through a cloud of smaller things. The big thing collects a little bit more mass as the bugs get squished on the windshield. Mm-hmm. And over time, you grow up planets. Well, so nowadays there's this idea called pebble accretion, and the idea is instead of one big thing sweeping up a bunch of small stuff, it's small stuff sweeping up itself. So imagine right. a cloud of pebbles. So in, in this case, pebbles is a bad term. Maybe it's boulders in the size of meters to tens of meters, or maybe it's actually large objects like a kilometer apart or a kilometer mm-hmm. in size. But the point is you've got a giant swarm of these things. 
and they're gravitationally attracted to each other. And over time, and even in some cases very quickly, it could be that these clouds collapse and they would form macroscopic large bodies because the clouds that we simulate in our solar system numerical simulations are typically pretty large. And so suddenly over the periods of hundreds to thousands of years, you get bodies in the tens of kilometers to hundreds of kilometers of objects just falling out and mm. they become these macroscopic things very quickly. And so that's very different than the idea of driving a car through a, a cloud of bugs and, and collecting mass that way. This is a sort of an, an in, instantaneous version of that idea. All the bugs on the windscreen right now. Like you put too many bugs together and they all enter a feeding frenzy on top of each other and you've got a mass of round dead bugs on the highway instead. <laughs> I, right. I see. Right. <laughs> Sounds great. Now, New, Hori- New Horizons went past MU69 on January 1st. Now, it's not just we're being lazy talking to you in March. Why haven't we got a lot of data from this mission so far? Why is it taking so long to learn anything about MU69? Space is hard, man. (laughs) So there's two things that are happening here that have caused the data to come down from the satellite in extremely slow paces compared to what we're used to. Uh, Normally, you send out a tweet, 150 characters or whatever the hell it is, blasts off into space, and it comes right back down again. That's taking advantage of modern technology and really short distances, relatively speaking. Obviously, you know, satellites in orbit are pretty far away from us, but compared to where ME69 and New Horizons are right now, they're freaking close. And so the satellite was launched 15 years ago. And so you're talking about technology that's 15 years old already. But in fact, Mm -hmm. it's even older than that because it has to be technology that is known to survive space for 15 years. So realistically, it's actually more like a lot of it is more like 30-year-old technology. Oh, what? Um, So go back back (laughs) to your your days of original internets and stuff where you have to plug in a phone cable and hear the screaming of the dial-up modem and stuff. Well, that's the data rates we're talking about. Hang on. I know. Hang on. I I can't even fathom that. Any like <laughs> that's terrifying. Um, Why do we do yeah. that? Because we can simulate space conditions better. You would think. Like we would be better at making the technology that survives in space. Is it just because people are like, oh, we solved that problem. We don't need to solve it again yet. No, no, it's not. It's more like Intel comes up with a new fancy little chip you put inside your phone or the laptop that I'm speaking to you on or, or whatever. And it works very well here because we've got very soft conditions, right? The, the atmosphere does a great job of removing cosmic rays. There's not a bunch of random stuff floating around. You, you can spend a great deal of money, and I, I'm talking a great deal of money. This is part of where why space is so expensive to create products that will last five or six years in space that is something we can do you can you can harden something is what is the process what they call they fire a bunch of radiation out it, figure out what fails and then harden those components so that it would survive you can do that but to do that for a 15-year duration takes many years of effort to, to achieve something like that and it's an exceedingly expensive process that turns out to, to basically destroy most of the products we create. There are very few things, very few pieces of silicon that we can create that would survive the rigors of space for 20 years. It, it in concept, seems like a very simple thing to do that in practice turns out to be exceptionally difficult. And the only companies out there that have really achieved that sort of technology are militaries, and we're not allowed to have it, right? <laughs> I so, see. Something mm. to- Mind, right, and of course it, you can't just give that stuff up because it's you know national security threats and all this sort of things. If only so some genius would come forward with some way of like being able to like merge the military forces with space, <laughs> create some sort of space force. 
Oh no! Where oh, all boy. this technology could join up and to the betterment of mankind. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm a bit terrified. <laughs> <laughs> that is the correct answer. Uh, <laughs> so New Horizons, it was hauling ass past Mu69. It didn't slow down, did it? I mean, it just shot past. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's no way to slow that thing down. So you're just, <laughs> just going to keep blasting. So how it must, must have only had a couple of hours of viewing time, really, as it went past it. It wouldn't have had a yeah. long time to look. I think so. There's the there's a there's a high resolution camera on it, and I think that camera got just over two hours worth of imaging. <laughs> so like I mean, they they were pointed at that Mu69 for months to make sure that they could steer the spacecraft at it correctly and to search for impact hazards and all of this sort of thing. You know, just being being safe about it. But it was sort of if you were to look at when they're collecting data off of the various instruments and this sort of thing, it's measured in hours. It's not measured in days. Um, wow. And so the the duty cycle on this thing, it takes you 15 years to get there and it gets you five hours worth of data. It's actually really crappy, but <laughs> it's the only way to do it. We don't have the technology to do it in any other way at the moment. So it's pretty fantastic that it was pulled off, in my opinion. And is that the end for New Horizons? Is it just fly now into galactic space, <laughs> lost forever? There is an extended Kuiper Belt mission because it does have a pair of their cameras on it, but really they're actually just telescopes. They're very similar in nature to the amateur telescopes you'd, you'd put in your backyard and stare up at the stars with. But it's in a pretty unique location, as you can imagine, right? All of our other telescopes are basically Earth-centric. They're either on the Earth or in orbit around the Earth or very close to the Earth. Mm. This thing is none of those things. And so the extended mission that's happening right now and will be happening for a few years still is to point at known and yet to be discovered Kuiper Belt objects from an angle that we simply can't get without being in the Kuiper Belt itself. And while that doesn't provide us high-resolution data like we get from these fantastic flybys, it does provide us information on how these objects reflect. And so hmm. here's, a, here's an experiment for you and your listeners. If you haven't done this before, go find a bright, sunny day and go find a grassy lawn or a leafy tree or something like that and put the sun behind you so that you're staring at the tree and the sun is behind your head and directly illuminating the tree. And you won't see any shadows. You look at the tree or the grass and it's very bright. And then as you walk away from that, changing the angle between you, the tree, and the sun, you will see darkness appear. The tree will actually get fainter. You'll see more shadows show up. And you get all of these effects that happen because of the fact that you're changing the angle between you, the target, and the sun. And mm -hmm. so that angle is called phase angle. And when we're on the Earth, you can imagine the sun is pretty much always directly behind the telescope. And the Kuiper Belt object is always on the night side. And so that angle is very, very small. But for New Horizons, that angle is actually close to 90 degrees because it's in the Kuiper Belt itself looking sideways. The information about the brightness of the object compared to what we see on the Earth, it tells us that we actually – it tells us about the, the surface texture of these things on, on various scales. And so you can imagine instead of a tree that has a bunch of leaves that are large bodies that cast moderately large shadows, you could imagine, say, mountains or craters or something like that. If the object is very rough textured in that sense, you would be able to detect that sort of thing by observing it at various phase angles. And so we're using ground-based telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope, Gaia where we can, you know, all, of the, all the telescopes we can to get moderately low phase angle stuff, and then the extended mission to get high phase angle stuff to tell us about what the surfaces of these things actually look like. Oh, it's like when you're looking at the moon through a telescope, and if you look at the moon through a telescope, 
to the full moon, it's like real dull, but it's much more interesting when it's a half moon. That's right. That's right. That's mm. exactly right. So the moon is a very interesting case because it doesn't don't don't do this. But if you were to stare at the sun, you'd see that the, sun, <laughs> the center of the squint. Sun, yeah, no. you'd see the center of the sun is very bright, and the limb of the sun, the edge of the sun, is actually relatively faint. If you look at the moon, it's pretty much uniformly bright all the way across, and that's merely because of the fact that the moon is coated in this very fine dust that reflects light very efficiently at high angles. And so the moon is a great example. You can, you can take a look at the moon and see that it's unusual compared to rocks on the Earth, which are not coated in this fine dust. And that's just because of how bright it is at an angle. So that's the same sort of experiment the, the New Horizons team is now performing with New Horizons itself, is to stare at a order. I think they're using something like 30 different targets uh, to provide these high phase angle measurements. And then we can then go into the lab and simulate the different kinds of materials that would produce the light behavior that we see on the various Kuiper Belt objects and therefore infer what these materials probably are. It's a really fantastic experiment. So we can finally work out whether Pluto and ME69 are actually made of Swiss cheese. Probably, yep. <laughs> we, can, we can put this to rest once and for all. Yeah, exactly. It's a really so, amazing thing, actually, that the New Horizons mission still, we, don't, we, we actually don't have, a, even after the two flybys, we still don't have a very good handle on the material that makes up Kuiper Belt objects. It's extremely frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So you described the camera on this thing as two telescopes. So yes. when you flew past the peanut in question, the pancakes in question, <laughs> very good. How, very good. how far away was it? Because it was like 40 kilometers across. How close did New Horizons get to it? A relatively safe distance of about 3,000 kilometers. Okay, so um, it's like really far away and really small. Yeah. And you had to so the, focus the, a the telescope on it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So the 3,000 kilometers was a balance between a number of different things. And so the, the telescope design on board New Horizons was designed specifically such that it could find an object if it didn't know exactly where the object was. It's got a very, very wide field of view and a crap ton of pixels behind it. So that the highest resolution images, I think it's producing about 150 pixels across the length of ME69, I think that's the best they're going to do. And it's more like 3,000 pixels that it goes all the way across the, the camera. And so there's a big range of error that you could make and still find the target. Then 3,000 kilometers is a reflection of, one, how much other crap is in orbit around ME69. Because as it turns out, one speck of dust impacting in the wrong angle would end the mission before you get any data at all. New Horizons would go dark, and you would have no idea what happened. That's just because of the fact that it's really far away, and it takes hours and hours for the first images to come down. So they want to get kind of far away, so that you got to make sure that if there's anything in orbit, it's probably going to be closer than it is far, so go farther away to avoid impacting any crap that we haven't seen yet. Plus, you don't actually know where exactly New Horizons or MU69 actually are. And my God, wouldn't it suck to smash into it? <laughs> I mean, it would be amazing. I, like, you you, know, you'd buy a lotto of, ticket. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It'd be an amazing thing for sure. But it would be a really, it would be quite a stroke of luck, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. ME69, we captured it with the cameras. We're zooming past it. Now we're zooming off into the outer Kuiper belt. Is there any chance of running into the fabled, or maybe not just not fabled, maybe theorized Planet Nine? No, not at all. Never, ever, ever. Um, so 
Weather, weather. Wait, planet hang on, hang nine. on. Just before we get, just uh, before we, that, we just want to ascertain that's planet nine N I N E, not N E I N. We just want to distance ourselves from the Nazi thing again. Yeah. <laughs> well, so oh, no. some say planet nine because they really don't believe it exists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a good joke. Planet Planet Nine is if it exists, it's somewhere in the distance of two hundred to. 700 astronomical units away oh oh my goodness okay (laughs) and pretty much in completely the wrong direction so it's really far away really really far away it would be pushing the boundaries of the known solar system if it were to be discovered that's for sure so this is an idea because you know obviously uh pluto is no longer considered the ninth planet because it's a dwarf planet and there's nothing else large but there seems to be an idea now that there may be something very very large further much much further out like i said five times further out than mu69 so what's the yep. what's that about? How can there be a giant planet? I mean, talking like a Neptune-sized planet sitting out in the outer solar system. Yeah, or or a small Neptune or a big Earth, depending on how you want to look at it. We don't really know what the mass might be. We have moderate constraint, but we really don't know what the mass is yet, uh, if it exists. So right back at the beginning of our chatting, I was telling you about how the orbital structure of the Kuiper Belt has demonstrated to us that Neptune has moved outwards. And that sort of information is why we study the Kuiper Belt. Well, we found a new signature, which, if real is doing something similar. It demonstrates that there must be a large mass out there. And so the idea goes, if you go and look at the most distant known bodies that are associated with the Kuiper Belt, these are objects that come in no closer than about 60 astronomical units, but go out hundreds or thousands of astronomical units. And we're just seeing the the closest few at this moment in time. Sedna is the most famous of these. It was the first of them. These are objects that are completely detached from the current mass of the rest of the solar system. And so in that sense, if you find one in one direction, you shouldn't have any preference to find another in the same direction. They should be found everywhere. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you go look at the available telescopic data, there's of order 20 of these now, maybe 15 of them, and they seem to be clustered in two directions. Nine, roughly 90 degrees away from the galactic plane on the ecliptic, uh, if, they, if your breeders happen to want to go look in that direction. <laughs> but that's, really, that's a really, really strange feature because you need something to shepherd these objects in those directions. Otherwise, you would find them in every direction. And we so don't. just like, like you were saying before, Neptune bullied all of the Kuiper Belt objects as it moved out. So you, something has bullied these very distant objects as well into certain orbits. Exactly. And so the it's it's actually more like, imagine there's a big swarm of blobs like Sedna flying around, and then Planet Nine comes along and acts the bully. It's not a perfect bully, though. And so there are a few locations in the solar system that are safe from the long-term effects of being bullied by Planet Nine. And it happens to be those are the ones we see now. And so uh. in that direction, and then in the opposite direction, are the only two places that these distant objects can survive. Otherwise, yep. they get scattered away and become comets or ejected from the solar system or, or anything else. It's sort of like the library of the school. So the safe place I used to hide from the bullies, I used to go to the library, hang out in the <laughs> library. And so yeah. all, all the other objects like myself would hide in the library. Yeah, yeah. One direction is the library, the other direction is the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got but, it. but wouldn't it be more like if bullies just always knew, you always knew exactly where the bullies were going to be and you just happened to be a quarter galactic ro- or a quarter rotation in front of them at all times? Well, so there are, there are some places that nothing ever goes around the sun perfectly commonly with everything else. And so if you, you're absolutely right that if 
Uh, so say planet nine goes around the sun every 2000 years. I don't actually know what the number is, but something like that. If you happen to be in a place that you go around the sun exactly every 2000 years or every 4000 years or 8000 years, and you can see what, what that number is doing, then you can find very, very, very narrow slivers of space that are safe. But those are extremely small locations. Over time, you will still, for the majority, build up perturbations, bashing off the lockers as you run down the hall away from the bully, um, <laughs> that eventually cause you to either run to the library or leave the school entirely. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, there we go. So, and this, this, yeah. we're talking like it's actually real. This is still pretty much bleeding edge astronomy at the moment, is it? It's, it well, seems okay. like so, something's going on. Yeah, to, to make, a, to make a, a statement like Planet Nine exists, you'd pretty much want to see it, wouldn't you? Uh, mm. We were come, leaving the uh, Asteroids, Comets, and Meteors conference and walking to a pub, as astronomers always do. And <laughs> uh, one of my good friends, who will remain na- nameless, we, we were actually with a couple of – we were with Scott Shepard and uh, Chad Trujillo, oh. which are a couple of the finders and proponents of the Planet Nine theory, uh, the, you know, the original proposers, mm-hmm. kind of, some of the original proposers anyway. And they were asking all of us one by one, do you believe or do you not believe? I won't, I won't <laughs> tell you how to vote it. But my friend made the great joke, I won't believe it even after you find the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> there you uh, go. So there's a, there's a lot of resistance in the community to whether this exists or not. Um, I, I would actually think the majority of people don't think it exists because there's some evidence that the signature we're seeing, the, the alignment, is not anything more than an observational bias. Telescopes have been pointed in very particular places and not in some others. The galactic plane exists in very particular places and not in some others. And so when you just add up all of the detected objects and plot, you know, plot them like we have, the alignment could be real on the plot, but totally false in nature because astronomers are shitty at making measurements, right? Um, <laughs> or astronomers are actually really good at making measurements, and this is a fantastically new signal and something really crazy is happening in the outer solar system. Mm. There's no in-between here. It's one or the other, and this is why it's such a contentious issue at the moment. Mm. It might not actually be a planet. There are other couple ideas that are being bandied around right now that may very well do a similarly good job at explaining the alignment. But quite frankly, Konstantin Batagen, the, the guy that wrote down the theory of what Planet Nine must actually be doing if, it, if it's real, mm. he's one of the best dynamicists that exists right now. He's one of the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure of working with, and he is so unbelievably good at what he does. Other people just aren't quite as good, and so while they're while their dynamicists are extremely smart people, the, the the efforts that they have put out are not quite as thorough, not quite as well studied, and not quite as rigorous as the sort of stuff that Constantine has put out. And so the, that's why Planet Nine is a very favored idea at the moment. It, it's mm. a, it's a moderately simple explanation to explain the alignment if it were real. And so in that sense, it's it's a kind of a beautiful theory. And there's some other lines of evidence that beyond the alignment that suggest that maybe planet nine is real or at the, at the very least there are other signatures that are compatible with the presence of planet nine for instance the tilt of the sun compared to the solar system planet nine could explain that if it were real the tilt oh, okay. of the sun sun's that's a sphere right. how do you tilt a sphere well that's right that's a, that's exactly the question how the hell do you tilt the sphere 
And so the idea goes the, the sun would have originally formed in the solar system pointed up, so spinning on a top, and that, of course, the solar system is spinning on a plate and the sun is just the top and the center. But now you put a golf ball out on the edge of the plate that has a mass but is not on the plate. It's actually orbiting through the plate. That golf ball over a long, long time, say 4 billion years, is going to apply a small gravitational torque on the sun itself. And that because the sun is not a perfectly homogeneous uniform sphere all the way through, there is a real torque that would happen between a planet nine and that thing. Even if the planet nine is many orders of magnitude lighter in mass than the sun, it, that there is still a, neg a non-negligible torque that added up over the age of the solar system would cause the sun to start to fall sideways. And mm. the magnitude of how angled the sun is, is broadly compatible with the mass of the inferred mass of planet nine and the orbit that it's on. And so in that sense, it's a pretty beautiful explanation for the tilt of the sun. And it's actually probably of the, of the ideas we have put forth so far, as far as I'm concerned, it's the most beautiful of them. So in that sense, there's, there's some signatures of the solar system that remained unexplained otherwise that do kind of fit with the idea of planet nine. So it's kind of cool. I have no idea if we'll find it, uh, but we'll see. <laughs> keep looking. The sun is spinning? Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. How fast does it spin? <laughs> oh, I should know this number. I did a lab in, in first-year astronomy that measured that. Uh, <laughs> like one a year? Once, it's once every 30 days or so uh, in what? that ballpark. Days. I was going to say 27, so that's okay. Good. Yep. Yeah, right. We're yep. on the same page. Yeah, so <laughs> you can actually do this with a piece of paper and a pinhole. If you go out outside on a bright sunny day and poke a hole in a piece of cardboard or something like that, you can project the sun onto... Well, well, really anything. It's a safe way to actually look at the surface of the sun is to look at the, the, the pinhole projection of this. And so you put up a pinhole, trace the sun, marking where north is, and draw dots where you see all the sunspots. Because, of course, you should see sunspots most of the time on the surface. Then go back and do it a couple of days later. You can actually see those same sunspots have shifted. And from that, you can directly measure how quickly the sunspot traverses the sun Multiply that by two. That's the rotation rate or rotation time period of the sun. It's a pretty easy wow. little experiment. Out of mind. Yeah. <laughs> but so, is it spinning with the rest of the in the same direction as all the yeah, other planets? Right. Spinning, spinning with it's 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 spinning prograde. It's spinning in the same sense as the solar system, as the planets orbit the sun itself. And so, in in that way, it's not broken, but it's tilted over a bit uh, okay. by a few degrees. That given that the sun is the most massive thing in the solar system, the significance of the tilt is pretty significant. So, this is going to be this is going to be a dumb question. If you've got a great big stellar body that's like spinning, like if that was made of iron, that would create like this crazy big electric field. Like it'd be like a big engine in space. What? Yep, that what, would be what, true. I, which I suppose at the same time that the sun is already a nuclear engine. But still, is there anything about the fact that a star can spin that creates some sort of energy effect or... The sun, of course, has magnetic fields, and this is this is starting to get right out, outside the range of my specialty, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but the, the, idea, the idea of my understanding of the source of these magnetic fields is that you have iron, blobs of iron, moving up and down in, in convection inside the sun, and they manifest on the surface as magnetic fields that penetrate the sun and show up as star spots and, and this sort of thing. Because magnetic fields have 
a conservation to them, conservation of energy, as you spin, you would change the magnetic field. And so if you spin up a star to spinning much faster than the sun or slow down a star to spinning much slower than the sun, but otherwise be exactly the same mass and composition, they would still also have very different magnetic field properties. So what what would happen if we stopped the sun from spinning or <laughs> sped it up like crazy? Uh... Not much. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank God. I think Dan, we should we should take Doctor Wiz back out to the cold areas of transneptunian objects where he's where he's more comfortable, not next to the not next to the bright sun. Good point. Good point. Uh... <laughs> so we're, we're back back in the cool and the shade. So Good. I'd like to ask though, you made a comment about uh, we don't know, even though we sent New Horizons out there, we don't really know what these transneptunian objects are made out of. What experiments do we need to do? What What's the next step do you see, the next experiment, the next satellite that we have to send out there? Do we have to actually go there and to one of these things and take a sample of it, or can we do other things? So there's two things that we're doing right now that don't involve spacecraft. I mean, certainly you could go out there and, and smash into it and dig it up or whatever else, you know, but there's two much more simple things, the approaches that uh, we can use. And one of them is in the lab. We know broadly what the solar system is made of. You know, we know the materials that are there, and we do have some compositional information from the flybys. And so what we can do is to say, okay, this red stuff on the, on the surface of Pluto, well away from the heart, we know some stuff about it now. Let's try to go to the lab and take materials that are reasonable, like things that we think Pluto might have formed out of, and then put them together and irradiate the crap out of them like they would be uh, <laughs> if they were out in the solar system for 4 billion years and see if we can't produce red stuff that mm. looks like the red stuff we see. And while that, that is a very simple way to describe what's actually happening, it is actually what's happening. That's exactly the sort of process that we're, we're trying to create analogs of the things we see in the solar system. So this certainly happens for asteroid experiments. This certainly happens for comets. And so in, in that sense, it's fun because you're trying to create many bits of the solar system inside the laboratory. And some people are really, really good at it. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. The, the other thing that we're doing, and this is actually my what I do, part of what I do for a living anyway, and one of my PhD students, Tom Seckel, does, we take things called uh, reflectance spectra. And so just like a prism will break up the colors of the sun and project, you know, purple through green on your wall. We take fancy prisms and stick them inside of a telescope camera and break up the light reflected to us from the Kuiper Belt object. And if you do that in the right way, you can see what are called absorption features. So instead of just reflected light from the sun, you see reflected light from the sun with certain ranges of color that are absorbed, modified, and reduced. And so if you were to take a rock, for instance, just go outside and take your favorite piece of basalt or beach sand or whatever you want and take a spectrum of it, you would see that in the visible range, there are multiple features that exist that identify the minerals in that rock. And that's the same thing with ice, like water ice in the near infrared, just at around one and a half microns, just outside the human visible range, there starts to appear some very deep absorption features. And that's just a reflection of the molecular nature of the material. Certain wavelengths get absorbed and re-emitted at longer or shorter wavelengths, such that you see this dip in light at the particular color of choice. And so the asteroids, you know, back in the 70s, it turns out the asteroids are actually very informative to us because because in the optical and near-infrared where it's easy to build a telescope, or we, <laughs> relatively easy to build a telescope, there are lots of indicative absorption features telling us what the bulk composition of those bodies are. And so wow. we knew 
that asteroids were rocky with not little to no water ice on their surface and lots of iron any well before we built a satellite to go there. Hmm. Turns out the Kuiper Belt's full of dickheads. The, <laughs> the other than water ice and a few particularly rare volatile species like methane, we don't see any absorption features in the telescopically accessible wavelength range. So that's to say, if you build an optical telescope and take a spectrum of a Kuiper Belt object, there is no informative uh, <laughs> to tell you anything about the composition. Oh, Same thing no. red and so on and so forth. We, we broadly have their colors and we know what the spectra look like, so we can get a guess as to what they look like. But we still would then have to go back to the lab and simulate the materials that might produce a spectrum that looks like what we're currently seeing. And so go back 20 years when New Horizons is being designed, we know, well, quite frankly, fuck all about the Kuiper Belt and almost nothing about what it's made of other than what we've written down in theory, and then design a camera that would do the job of telling us what it's made of. Mm. Well, the best thing you've got to inform you of that are asteroids and comets where the optical and the near-infrared range have, you know, have been extremely informative. Mm. And so you build a camera and a spectrograph and all this sort of thing. You put it on a spacecraft. You launch it off the solar system like it's nobody's business. And you blast it past ME69 only to discover when you get there, or at least in the last 10 years, discover with all the telescope work that there are no significant absorption features in the range. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the situation we're in. In fact, I've seen the, the first main spectrum of the body that uh, that came off of the New Horizons satellite of NU69. And there are some bumps and wiggles that might be interpreted as absorption features, but they also might just be interpreted as instrumental effects that they haven't sorted out yet. And so even even to me, who I'm a, I'm a specialist in spectra, I've taken many and, and we've published papers on this stuff, even to me, I don't necessarily believe them. And so <laughs> at this point, it's extremely frustrating because it's not completely unfair to say that from the spectral Im imagery, we haven't learned anything more about the bulk compositions of these objects than what we already have from the already so um, we so it's the equivalent so it's a monolith of, right yeah <laughs> like it's the monolith from 2001 yeah, like it's it's absorbing all your information <laughs> it's giving yeah. nothing out it's a real a really unfortunate thing because one of the big outstanding <laughs> questions about the Kuiper Belt is what these things are made of right because if you could figure out what they're made of then you could figure out what the early solar system was made of and you could figure out how planets formed for Christ's sake but we don't have that and you can imagine stuff sticking together and forming planets you kind of need to know how sticky the stuff is well we currently don't know how much rock is out there right <laughs> As an astronomer whose life mission it is is to detect rocks in the outer solar system, it's embarrassing to say that, but it's true. And it's not the fault of the, the mission designers in any way. It's just that these nature's a dick. Like, <laughs> that's, there you go. That's, that's, that's a catch cry for the podcast. Nature's yeah. a dick. <laughs> now, before we finish up talking, Dr. Wes, people in families – always say they don't have a favorite child, though research has shown this not to be true. We, everyone has a favorite child. So I'm going to put you on the spot now and say, not not of your own children, if you have children, but but of the Kuiper Belt objects, do you have a favorite Kuiper Belt object? I do, actually. 2004 EW95. Ah, 
very famous. Go back, no. go back and look at, at tw- the name 2014 MU69. 2014 was the year it was discovered. M and U reflect the weeks in which it was detected, and 69 represents the 69th object reported to the Minor Planet Center in that given week. 2004 EW95 is an object that is very similar to Pluto in its overall orbit. It's much smaller, mind you, but in, in that sense, it, it's a, it, we call them Plutinos because they share the same kinds of orbits. It was discovered in 2004 in E that corresponds to March. It was just, just sort of an average object in, in that sense, discovered in, in amongst a bunch of others. And Mike Brown, one of the proponents of Planet Nine, I was working with him at the time to study a bunch of Kuiper Belt objects with the Hubble Space Telescope to try to figure out what they're made of. And we were gathering color measurements with Hubble in wavelengths that you couldn't get from the ground. And EW95 stood out as an odd one in that it, since it had a, a spectrum that didn't look like any of the others. And so from that point, I started an observing campaign to try to get some spectra of this thing. I spent an entire, almost an entire night on the very large telescope staring at one body. That was a very, very expensive run. And the data that came out, most would say, is utterly mediocre because of the quality. There's very, very few photons collected on something as faint as uh, EW95. Then, with the help of my current student, who's just about to graduate, hooray, Tom Seckel, his thesis was using a bunch of these spectra to try and figure out if we could find any absorption features. And goddammit, we did. This object, if you take an asteroid, a C-type asteroid, not necessarily Ceres, but any of the normal C-type asteroids, and drop its spectrum on top of the spectrum of EW95, you would not be able to tell the difference. And this is an amazing thing because C-type asteroids' spectra are dominated by features related to silicates or rocks. And so for the first time ever, we found (laughs) rocky material in the Kuiper Belt, or at least the signatures of rocky material. Moreover, it looks exactly like you would see in the asteroid belt and so this is the sort of uh, at least a lot of people are interpreting this as the first sort of evidence to say that not only did neptune move outwards but at about the same time jupiter moved inwards and scattered a bunch of asteroids outwards and this just happens to be the first one that we've identified that is in the kuiper belt now and so the whole solar system went crazy batshit crazy at one point moving stuff around all over the place and EW95 is one of the pieces of that puzzle. And so to me, it's very near and I've spent many years looking at that damn object. Uh, <laughs> and we've learned a great deal about it now. And it's it's a very hot topic. It'll probably be one of the first targets pointed out with the uh, JWST if that thing ever flies. Oh. And did you give oh, it fantastic. like a cute nickname? And how does that nickname relate to the National Socialist German Workers' Party? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going anywhere near that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Dan, for, for lowering the tone as per usual. Uh, and thank you also to, to Dr. Wesley Fraser for talking to us today about all things uh, New Horizons and MU69 and Planet Nine and the entire – every time we talk to anyone about the trans-Neptunian area, the Kuiper Belt area, I keep, keep finding more and more things to talk about. It's such a fascinating area. So thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you, thank you for the enthusiasm. Again, a big thank you to Wes Fraser for his time. It's one of those subjects that every time we learn something about it, there's suddenly five or six more things I desperately need to know. So every time we have an expert, I'm always like, don't go, expert. Don't go. I need to I need to pick your brains about all these different things. It's it's very exciting. Oh, we'll use a VPN if you're going to start doing research into that Ultima Thule stuff because you could be in some you – you, you, you could hit some real <laughs> alert buttons on the oh. internet. 
That's I know. I, that was a little bit surprising and, and icky and upsetting. Oh, no. I had no idea about that. That was totally, totally new to me. That is the correct uh, response to discovering that, being upset yes. and finding it icky. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things I, I, I kind of understand the New Horizon scientists went, hey, we came up with a cool name. Yeah, okay, it's got Nazi connotations, but that's, you know, we didn't mean it. It's fine. And I... It's the thing I've tried to learn as I got a bit older is that it's not if it upsets you, it's if it upsets everybody else. <laughs> the problem, though, is that you're like, oh, but if we can't, like, this is a Greek thing, and why, why do they keep taking all this cool stuff off us? Just because, once again, we can't use the swastika anymore, we can't use the name Ultima Thule, we can't count Reichs up to four anymore, uh, and <laughs> the, the Nazis keep winning. They keep taking this stuff off it. They killed yes. a bunch of people, and now there's a bunch of words we're not allowed to use either. And it's like Charlie Chaplin moustaches, ruined, ruined, ruined. forever. <laughs> it, unfortunately, millions of people died, and nowadays the Nazis are back somehow. I don't know. Suddenly, they what, what are they, mushrooms? They sprung up from the darkness? Who knows? But I guess it makes it a bit more difficult, and you just have to be a little bit more open about, okay, that's uncool, let's change the name. Because, it, you know, it's just a name, but if it upsets someone, then... It's not just a name. It's an upsetting name. Anyway. Yep. I, I read somewhere someone said, oh, don't let words have power over you. And I thought to myself, we're, we're, we're storytelling monkeys. That's the That's only we power we have. Exactly right. It's not – look – once again, if I say, if I do something and someone goes, actually, that's that's quite really upsetting to me. It's not that they're offended. It's the fact that they're upset by it. Then then it's not hard to not do yeah, it. Just, just don't, don't do, it. do it. Just don't, just don't, do, don't it. do it. Be nice. Just, here's a, yeah, here's a, here's a, a mind f*** you all. Just be yeah. nice, people. If everyone was <laughs> nice, it all work itself out. Exactly but you right. You can't exactly. help yourself, can you? Yeah. Uh, Anyway, we can live uh, in a utopia. We send all the Nazis to the, to the Nazi named stellar body. We take we send right. all the flat earthers to the body out there that's flat. It's literally flat. They love it. <laughs> it's two flat things joined together. Good old MU sixty nine. Oh my goodness! <sighs> a bit of cathartic rage in the morning. Fantastic. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. You've been listening to Greg at smartenough.org. You could touch any of our buttons on our website at smartenough.org. You can subscribe to the podcast by numerous means, and you can follow us on all sorts of social media, even the wicked ones. <laughs> the ones that dare not be mentioned anymore because it upsets people. Ooh. We're talking about Facebook, by the way. It's Facebook. We're talking about Facebook. Yep. <laughs> If you would like to support us, please do tell all of your friends. Go ahead, just go and tell them. Just go out and just go, friends, friends, we have great news to tell you about the podcast that will change your life. Oh, no, or grab their phones and, yes. and, and, and it, like insert our podcast into their phone. That's just all the time, no matter what they do. When they get the alarm in the morning, our podcast. When they're like, like their their memories of their parents, like their like their deceased parents, now it just plays our podcast. It's like any sort of important thing, like like injection of insulin, pays our podcast. Done. Insulin's worth a lot of money these days. That's right. <laughs> Let's think about money we're saving for that person. If you would like to support us financially, you don't have to. Nah. You don't have to, listeners. You don't have to. It's just a little bit of above and beyond, you know, it the, is. the special people. Then you can give us <laughs> the 20, chosen ones. 20. Are you, you, 
you can give us 20 10-cent pieces Please. per month. Yes. And, and that's just a little bit of money for us to, like, play with. Is that American Dimes? Uh, yeah, Dime is 10-cent yeah. piece. Yes, well, who knows? But I don't know why. I'm sure there's reasons. Or 10 years in prison in the big house. What are, we, what are we talking about? Currency, and I don't understand why. We really need to wrap this episode up. There, if you wanted to support us a bit more, you could give us five bucks a month, and then we're going to read your name out on the podcast. That's right. And we'll do it in a sexy way. Uh, no, we won't. I'm oh. just going to read them all out. Well, but everything you do is sexy, Dan. That's what it is. That's oh. what I meant. <clears throat> Avi Greenbury, Evil One, Steve Eichenhout. Lindsay Jenkinson, Matt Ewers, Andrew Whitehurst, Elizabeth Yankin, Morden O'Hare, Matthew Toy, Phil Holland, Ilana Mitchell, Andrew Potts, Andrew Trousdale, EarthDog58, Michael Barnes, and Gary Heather. Thank you all so much for, for, for coming down and like giving us five bucks every month. It's really, it's really good. If you've just spontaneously had a baby, Please name it after Dan. Yeah, yeah. In fact, whatever babies you have, name it after Dan. Always. It's a great I think name. from now on, from now on, if you na- have a baby and you name it after Dan, we'll um, uh, no, we'll get, we'll make another uh, another set of uh, awards. Like, yes, remember the yep. awards we were doing the um for people who save people's lives the science. Yes, yes, yes. We'll do another one of them, but okay. for people who name their kid Dan after me. Only after Dan. It has to be Dan, J-J-J, and then your last name. Okay, so if you're a massive... No, if you're a sadist, you could pay <laughs> 15 bucks a month. Yes. And I have to abuse you. Yes, it's creepy and weird. Why yeah, do you do and it's Dan? getting it's harder weird. every month, too. That's, that's true. Okay, so... <clears throat> Dustin Fallon. What sort of a name is Dustin? Out of all the stranger things... You're the strangest. Ooh. <clears throat> Very good. Al Batson. Saying your name makes me want to be sick. So when I reference one of my favourite predator dinosaurs, I just call it Osaurus. <laughs> it's a slow burn. Love it. Scott Driscoll. I heard your mother-in-law slipped off this mortal coil just to avoid spending one more dinner with you. Is that... Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, I know. I don't oh. know why they pay us for this. This is brutal. Like, that's this is real a... dark. That's, that's, that's pretty dark, yeah. That's... Um, okay. Wow. Oh. Eric Wilson. You're about as helpful as your namesake, the volleyball from Castaway. Insofar as you're great <laughs> company, and if you fell off the raft and drifted into the sea, I'd be heartbroken. Oh, thanks, Eric. Steve Stewart. Adam and Eve, ha, more like Adam and no one. He'd rather be alone. (laughs) Thank you to all of our top tier. Oh, God, this is like, this breaks me. Thank you to our top tier donated patrons. (laughs) Thank you very much, everyone. We appreciate it a lot. Oh, man. <laughs> See, the thing is, Dan's a really, actually a nice person, so even though we sort of paint him as this giant monster. No, 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 no. I'm great the rest of the podcast. It's this one thing where it's so counter to my... <laughs> ah, good times. So don't you ever say that again, you fucking c- I'll murder you. 
Fair enough. Oh, you. And as we always like to say, nature's a dick. Well, um, how would you like me to uh, introduce you then? Oh, oh God, uh, that's a good question. Um... <laughs> that's a very common response from the scientists we know. It's, it's always like, I'm just a child of the universe exploring great <laughs> truths. <laughs> so as soon as he said that the sun rotated, I, part of my brain was like, of course the sun rotates. Space, mm. everything fucking rotates. Yeah, everything that can't help itself. Yeah. <laughs> yep. We yeah it did not take us long to hit Godwin's law in this episode. No. <laughs> you have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. Oh, hang on, I've lost you there, Dan. Sorry. Oh, bloody hell. You have been it's listening to Dan at smartenough.org. You've been listening to Dan, but not it's Greg. My, oh, my speakers, hang on, sorry. I, you can hear me. I can't hear you, though. Hang on, sorry. Wait up. It's my side, though, not your side. That's a, that's oh. a very successful chant at the, uh, at the football matches. It's my hang side. On. It's not your side. It's my <laughs> side. It's not your I'm back side. again. I, I can hear you again now. Brilliant. Sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> Switch audio to Airbeam TV? No. I don't know what that is. Probably your next door. It'd be really awesome. You can start like, talking to the television. Take your no. pants off. Take your pants off and go dance by the window for a bit. That sort of stuff. Do you think that would work? <laughs> Look, if your TV told you to do something, you have to do it. That's the rule, isn't it? That's how. That's how Fox News works. That's a- <laughs> hey! Hey! We're ready to write that sitcom. <laughs> Like editing the podcast, I've realized I'm not swearing quite so much because it mm. requires a little bit more effort to edit them in the new program. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm subconsciously going, nah, that's too much work. That's not worth it for. <laughs> that's not worth a bleep. <laughs> I'll be interested to see if you get better at that sort of stuff now that you're editing yourself. Because mm. what I learned editing myself is that I now just pause. I don't um very much. Mm. I just stop talking because it's much easier to edit. And subconsciously, <laughs> I'm like, this is less work. The only thing I do, I don't um a lot, I don't think. When the interviews I was been doing, I don't um a lot. But I can tell when my brain's had 700 ideas at once and desperately tries to get them all out at once. And so I start, I go... So the idea about the blah, and then I stop the sentence, and I restart a sentence, and then I stop it again, and I restart. And then there's like 10 yep. seconds yep. Where, I'm, yep. where my brain's like, oh, my God. And then it's like, okay, here's what I want to actually say. I am very familiar with the phenomenon. <laughs> so it's, it's, I found it quite endearing until I had to edit it. And uh, I was like, yeah, God yeah. damn it, Greg. God damn it. Yeah, getting rid I, I love an um now. Ums are easy. You could spot them coming a mile away. But you, you, you're like, how many times is he going to start this sentence? <laughs>